Psychological meaning. We're gonna dive deep into your inner world, so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. She did not want to talk. Yet she felt there were thousands of words choking her throat, and perhaps only distance, thousands of miles could straighten them out. Perhaps it was freedom that choked her. Or so thought Therese, Patricia Highsmith's lonely shop girl turned romantic lead in her early novel, The Price of Salt. When I first read it, I found myself overlaying Babylon, the woman city that I've alluded to in the past. I overlaid Babylon, the queen, on these women. Both the sophisticated yet fragile Carol and the determined, intuitive Therese. The men in this novel are so rigidly dangerous. Like the men I grew up with, and like Lot, who left his wife behind, and when she looked behind, wanting to remember what she had lost, she became a pillar of salt. Now she's ready to season our curiosity about what you and I have left behind. In our ninth episode of the season, The Enemy, we're going to explore the heroic in the shadow of our shame. A much more complicated task than it seems. I wore purple and pearls, and my voice rasped like I had smoked a pack a day since the age of two. I tried to smoke a cigarette once, after someone had bought cheap champagne at the bar although I do not have any recollection as to why, and when I smoked it, it burned my throat, like regret, like shame. I've never smoked again. It was also the spring that I fell in love, really, really fell in love for the first time. Falling in love isn't how I always thought it would be. Actually, like the recovering control freak that I am, I had been very insistent for years that I would just walk into love. I would be conscious. I would be aware. I wouldn't fall like a clumsy damsel in distress from some romance novel, aka a bodice ripper, written in the early 1980s. Neither of these metaphors really quite work, though. Because falling in love wasn't really falling, nor was it a conscious controlled decision. It was like finding yourself walking on a path with a stranger, and the deeper into the woods you ventured, the more your hearts became entwined. And when you finally emerge, it seems absurd to consider separating, because it would break both of your hearts to do so. 
And in that spring that I really fell in love, I also walked around with pneumonia, both before and after being diagnosed, thus the rasping voice. It might not surprise you that I remember a lot of things that have happened to me. Or maybe a more accurate way to state that is that I have an imagination that does a very good job of replicating what has, and sometimes hasn't, happened to me. But a memory that is clear as day is that spring day a handful of days before my 25th birthday, a handful of days before my chapel sermon, which was a kind of senior recital for divinity school graduates. In that day that I remember so clearly, I was walking across the quad, which was a gorgeous, is a gorgeous, green open square as space at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I'm walking, and my heart was starting to open up to the possibility of love with someone who to this day remains both the most direct and most kind person I know. And as I was walking and thinking of Babylon, suddenly I found myself doubled over, crippled by the coughing fit that nearly brought me to my knees. And in that moment, it felt like being possessed by a demon or ghost. I don't know. And I I can still feel it. The constriction that was squeezing me alive while the sky blazed like hope and the air smelled like my birthday. And the only thing I could think in my haze of gasping for air was, is this how she felt when those who loved her tore her apart? We should probably start at the beginning. When I began my master's in divinity program, I assumed, like most others, that I'd go into ministry. And maybe, if I was lucky enough, I'd get a PhD and teach others the rhythm of religion and theology so that they would have what they needed to help their congregations uncover the mysteries of faith. Ministry, which is it's many things, but really it's the tending to the hearts and souls of others. Ministry had been off-limits to me for so long that it seemed like the ultimate of forbidden paths. I like the forbidden, the pathways that are marked as not for you, do not trespass. Secrets and privileges locked away. And so, when I finally tried it, ministry I mean, it fell far short of my very unreasonable expectations. But... By the time I realized that, I was two years into a master's degree, and I, I had to do something with it. I had spent a fair amount of money on that and my undergraduate degree in religion. I couldn't just pivot now. couldn't change career directions now. I didn't know it then, but my MDiv, my undergraduate degree, they had both everything and nothing to do with what I would end up doing as a career. My MDiv laid the foundation, for me, of what it means to be a good, curious human. I had all the building blocks long before, but I didn't know how to use them. I didn't know how to lay the planks of curiosity. And so it didn't really matter what job I actually did as a result. My MDiv was a school of humanity. It taught me to be myself. And it did so while I was distracted learning how to translate Greek and esoteric religious beliefs into something applicable to the here and now. 
was a laboratory for the soul. I played with any number of potential job titles while I was there, though, because practicality is a thing. You have to do something to make money, at least in the world that we have co-constructed together. And so I, I thought of things like, perhaps I would be a senior minister, weaving in poetry with the prophecy and pastoral practicality. Or maybe, potentially, and with less peas, I could be a feminist religious scholar, tucked away in the ivory towers of academia, could have a PhD to proclaim my brilliance when I doubted it. And often, on the eve of finals, my fondest dream, my most longed-for dream, was just to be a bartender serving drinks and wisdom in some little dive bar to the heartbroken and drunk. I have done none of those things. Or maybe... Maybe with Babylon, I did all of them, and I found all of them wanting. You see, we project ourselves into the story, and it could be any story. I'm watching the Umbrella Academy right now, and I'm sure if you've seen it, there's one of the number of people that you identify with that is more you than the others. Unsurprisingly, I like Vanya. We, We put ourselves into the story. That's part of what stories do. We are meaning-making creatures. We want to know what the future holds. We crave to decode the past. The Bible, along with other sacred and classical literature, and really, let's be frank, pulpy literature too, all of that offers a key not only to the past, but to our future. No one ever seems all that interested in the present. Maybe that's because you just take a breath, and it's gone. And you take another breath, and it's gone. You can't grasp the present. It just is. For me, Babylon offered a key to make sense of what had been done to me, but also what I did and do to others. I keep acting like you know these Bible stories, though, and that's an unfair assumption. You probably actually don't know the story, even if you know the Bible very well. People don't spend a lot of time in Revelation, fucks with her head. So let me tell you the story of Babylon and let us sit together and see if we can make meaning of it for ourselves, to put ourselves in the story and discover what we might about us, you and me, and the two of us together. Once upon a time, when John the Dreamer was stuck, At the never-ending cocktail party of the apocalypse, he's called over by one of the seven avenging angels, all of which remain nameless and thus are all the more difficult to keep track of. This angel, though, beckoned John, beckons us, and ushers us into a room where we see the most beautiful woman you or I have ever seen. She sits surrounded by men panting after her, desire hooding their eyes, a threat they fool themselves into believing is a promise. If you squint just the right way, there's something about her that will remind you of Botticelli's birth of Venus, the goddess of love emerging from the water's newborn, capturing our gaze for centuries. At our goddess's feet is a dog, her pet dog, a fierce beast 
that is somehow unnatural. The beast's eyes gleam with a scarlet glow in a way that would be startling if he weren't so captivated by her beauty. She's clothed in purple and scarlet. She's gilded in gold. She shines, bedecked in costly jewels and pearls, and when she moves to laugh at something one of her admirers say, you see the flash of wealth and arrogance. It gleams in the light. She exudes wealth, class, and unearned confidence that is conveyed as a matter of birth and not perseverance. And in her hand, she holds a golden cup, like a femme fatale from one of the old movies you watched in high school in an attempt to pretend you were cool. And the contents of the golden cup would disgust you as much as she draws you close. Her lips are stained blood red, and as you draw closer, you can see that she is drunk on the power and the wine, which is a potent combination. And if you draw closer still, you will scent the mystery. It smells metallic. And you will see the mystery of who she is written in her eyes. Or you think you will. Most likely, when that happens, it's because you'll inscribe your own shame and name it as hers. What you call her says more about you than her. John, seduced and intoxicated by her beauty, her intelligence, her boldness, he inscribes her, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. The angel, mistaking our distraction for amazement, will then engage in some seraphic mansplaining. He'll tell us with glee, she will be made into a wilderness, desolate and alone. She will be made naked, stripped of her clothing, her dignity, her power, and made vulnerable in the absence of her privilege. Her lovers will besiege her. They will ruthlessly devour each and every part of her. And once they've had their fill, they will burn her with fire, just as they once burned with lust for her. All that will linger is a smoke weaving its way upward, an ephemeral reminder of who she once was. And why? Why, you might ask, why would her lovers do this? Why Why would anyone do this to a woman? Aren't we past that? Why would her lovers and her admirers turn on her so violently? The answer is very simple, albeit unplatable. Because God has united the whore-haters to destroy her with their misogyny. And friend, lest you feel any sympathy for her and the violence afflicted upon her, our angelic guide will end with a flourish. The woman you saw is the great city, the one that subordinated all men, kings and shepherds, to her. And the irony will linger in the stench of smoke, the woman city who ruled over all, has now been brutally dismantled by her former subordinates. In the distance, if you strain to hear, you might hear the lament of the merchants who once made their fortunes in and on her. And even further, you might hear the disembodied voice of the apocalypse calling, Come out of her, my people, so you do not take part in her transgression, and so you do not share in her plagues. God has remembered her iniquities. 
render to her as she herself has rendered. It's a violent story. It's one that has captured my imagination for a long time. And yet, the question remains, who is Babylon? And why does she matter so much? The other characters in the Book of Revelation, they're not terribly hard to decode. It feels clear who this other really striking woman is. This other woman stands for Jerusalem. Perhaps she is like Mary. She certainly is an old image. That woman is clear of who she is. God, it's clear who God is. It's clear who Jesus is. He plays multiple roles. Occasionally people get confused that John of Patmos is the same as John the Beloved, the disciple of Christ, which probably they're not the same. And really, who who knows who the fuck John of Patmos actually was? Just a pseudonym. He's just just a dude stuck on an island recording his psychedelic dreams. But Babylon, who is Babylon? Scholars argue about it frequently. It seems clear that the author wants us to believe that Babylon is Rome, the empire that had oppressed Christians, the empire that sought to martyr, sought to stain the streets in blood. It seems clear that it's Rome, except that only works if you read it from a historical viewpoint. Rome. Rome's now the seat of a new empire, the Christian Empire, the Holy Roman Catholic Empire. Surely, Babylon can't be the Catholic Church. Except, of course, if you grew up the way I did with a bunch of ex-Catholics who had a hard-on for the Pope, sure, Babylon can be still Rome. It's just the Catholic Church. And maybe thus, uh, the Beast or the Antichrist, of which they're separate figures, maybe the Pope is the Antichrist. And I forget who they say is the beast, but it doesn't really matter. Who is Babylon? She changes. She changes who she is depending on who you ask, depending on their own shit, of what they project on this changeable woman, who always ends by being ripped apart by her lovers, much like Jezebel was ripped apart by her dogs. Who is Babylon? And why does she matter so much? She matters, I think, because she is the enemy. She's the one who holds our projections just as much as the hero does. But whereas the hero takes in our projections and transforms them, subliminates them, grows from them, the enemy rejects them and casts them back at us, amplifying our shit, giving it back to us in double measure. That's theoretical, though, right? The question really is, who is Babylon to you? Who is your enemy? And what do you project onto them? I live, I like to pretend, just down the street from D.C. It's not really down the street, it's 20-something miles away. And back before COVID, 20 miles is a, a great distance in the land in which I live. And I think sometimes about how how the way things are run, the powers that be, it makes sense to me to imagine Babylon as the city. The city personified, like Washington is personified. And actually, 
it makes sense to me to imagine Trump as the Antichrist. Somebody said this to me the other day. I must have seen it somewhere on the internet about how how if Trump is the Antichrist, then all of his followers really do wear his sign on their forehead in those hats, make America great again. And I liked that idea. I like the play imagining Trump as the Antichrist, but that's because I don't like Trump. So it's easy to imagine Trump as the Antichrist, just as if I was on the other side of things, it would have been easy to imagine Obama as the Antichrist. It's easy to project what I hate onto them. And it's hard to untangle what is it that I hate and what is it that is reality and what what's getting lost in the in-between. I think, I feel confident about this, that many of us do not like Trump. Many of us are horrified about what him and the GOP have done to this country. How they have taken what is happening, what it is they're doing, and they project it all over others. But I, I ask myself sometimes, what is the psychological meaning of Trump and the GOP? Why is it that I hate them so much? And maybe it's the old trope of love the sinner but hate the sin. I don't know. It might be my fundamentalism rearing its head again. But I have to wonder, what is it in me that is mirrored in them? Or what is it in them that is mirrored in me? However you want to say it. If they're the enemy, then how am I also the enemy? And that's a complicated question to ask yourself. It's hard to get in touch with the shadow. Because most of us, even those of us weighed down in shame, we want to believe the best of ourselves. We want to believe that we are pretty good people. We try hard. That we have earned our success. That we we deserve what we have. Unless it's bad and then maybe we don't deserve it so much. Except that hides. It, it hides our complexity. And just like with the hero that we talked about last week and how Jesus haunts me, it often feels like my enemy. So Babylon haunts me and often feels like my hero. That I'm holding both of these parts within myself, the privilege and the oppressed. The, the confident don't give a fuck. And the prophet who took care of those they loved. We all have this polarity inside. I'm sure I've said it to you before, and I'll say it to you again, because I really love this song, and I love this line. I don't remember the name of the song, but AOL Nation has a song where he says that he is human, capable of doing really bad things. And I work to hold that in mind. Because I imagine that Babylon, who clearly was not a real woman, she was just personified, but Babylon, the woman, she didn't imagine that she was bad. She didn't imagine that she was 
drinking the blood of the saints. She was just having a glass of wine. She was just playing a song on her fiddle. She was just ruling and loving her subordinates. She was just pampering her beast. She didn't think she was the enemy. In fact, if we were to talk to her, she might think that she's the victim. Of how she fell in a day, how she burned. How empire became dismantled by its own indulgences. Believed for a long time that I live in an empire. About the time that I was working on my thesis, about the time that I was crippled by that walking pneumonia, I was reading a lot of postcolonial theory, a lot of womanist theology and interpretation, and I was seeped in liberation theology all throughout college, not college, divinity school. I read some in college too, but was seeped in it in divinity school. And all, all of that, it was offering a new perspective. It was offering a new frame. It was looking at things that I have looked at with different eyes and allowing me to see how others see. And just like when you try to look and see through a new lens, it's complicated and you compare it to your own. It's hard to really sink in and to see how the other sees. But it's vital. And I think it's vital so we can discover the enemy within, so we can understand the shadow within. And if I am going to understand what I hate so much about Trump, I have to understand why he is loved. I have to understand why I am threatening to those who adore him. And some of that shadow may be good and some of it may be bad. But it's it's the only way I'll discover who I actually am. I have to unveil my hatred. Just like with Jesus, with the hero, I had to unveil my strength of what good I have to offer to the world. With Babylon, I have to understand what destruction I have to offer to the world. And good isn't always good, and destruction isn't always bad. I'm curious, in you, who is your enemy, and how are you them? And who is your hero? And how are you them? And how do the two sit within you? Whether one is hanging on a cross and one is sitting on a throne, whether one is devoured by that which she loved and the other is elevated for that for which he gave up. Which part of you is the enemy? Which part of you is the hero? And how can you combine the two? Too often, we proclaim ourselves above it all, like Babylon, and to an extent, like Jesus. And the text tells us that in her heart, she reassured herself, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Yet she missed the truth under her self-soothing facts. 
she lacks love and only holds the illusion of it. And that illusion is what destroyed her. And if we were to turn to the hero, we would discover in many ways the same is true. It may not have been an illusion. It may have been the reality. But the reality still had Jesus hanging on a cross. Still had him dead before his 34th birthday. Whether it's illusions or reality, Apocalypse is calling. It's calling to abandon all of what we know and allow our mystery to be unveiled. But the Apocalypse likes to jump ahead because that's the theme for next week, not today. So be sure to join me then. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.